0: If everybody were to just improve themselves, that would solve a lot of society's problems. Now, unfortunately, that's not going to be the case that everyone does that. It's much more clear when you, when you say it that way that not everyone's going to do something positive. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, but that's, that's kind of the only advice I ever have. If you
1: don't know James Altucher, get to know him. I linked to his page, so you click on the link. But there's so much about him online in his 20 books and so on, many podcasts that he's been on that he's done. That you'll mainly learn he's a renaissance man and there's more to him than you could possibly get. But read up on him. I'll just say a few words that pop up when you read or learn about his background. He went to Cornell. He studied computer science. He got his first job at HBO. He started his first company or one of his first big companies reset while at HBO. He lost $15 million, regained a whole bunch. He's written 20 books. He works or he worked at a hedge fund. He started this company called Stock Picker. He's run, according to him, 20 businesses, of which three were successful. Lately, he's been into Bitcoins. He's a chess master. He's got his own podcast on Question of the Day. I heard about him first, somehow, a long time before. And I know I saw a New York Times article that he was living kind of homeless, not homelessly, but staying on friends' couches. So I emailed him and said, do you want to stay with me? He didn't, but he does stand-up, and he's part owner of Stand Up New York, which is a club. And that's where I saw him most recently. That's where I learned about his HBO story, his working with the Wu-Tang Clan, going to the ATM and seeing he had a hundred dollars, roughly a hundred dollars left in his account after having 15 million. I was nervous before recording because I didn't know where to start, but I also didn't want to cover what everyone else did. As it happened, he and I just started talking casually before recording. While we were talking, his engineer turned on the, started recording and you'll hear after the, the start, when we found out that we were being recorded, we talked about initiative, education, how to learn social and emotional skills, my categorization of Active, social, emotional, expressive, performance based fields. We talked about cold showers, exploring nature, my podcast strategy, and why it brought him to me or why it brought me to him. He has written and spoken at length on taking initiative, alternatives to mainstream education, alternatives to getting a house. He seemed fascinated by my teaching style. I gave him a copy of my book and he was leafing through it while we were talking there. Since his engineer mixed live as we went, I edited nothing. What you hear is everything that we talked about. I'm not even removing any ums or anything. We started talking about nature and the environment about 50 minutes in. Anyway, James is fascinating and I believe fascinated. And without further ado, here's James Altucher. Treats it like it's some big burden, like it's a chore. If you don't do yeah. it, you're going to kill babies.
0: You know, it, 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 I'm oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: And, so, and that's been the opposite of my experience. And that's what I'm trying to share. And the way I do it on my podcast, well, the podcast is step one. That's not the end goal, but I want to get people who are well-known, who others follow. To act on their environmental values and share what the experience was like, because every single time I do it, the person's like, I'm really glad I did this. I wish I'd done this before. And I think that on a one-on-one basis, I, I predict that I'll get you to a place where you're like, oh, I want to do something. Even if maybe you already are, I'm not sure. And that, and then that's the that's on each episode. But then the big picture is to get the a cultural shift to where people feel like, I think now people feel like if I act what no one else does and what I do doesn't matter. Or, you know, these things are too big or these things are too small they aren't worth doing. Someone else, corporations should do it. But we're talking about something joyful. But, well, people don't get that. And I want people to feel, I, I want to get a cultural shift. Yeah. Led by well-known people. And I don't think that's happening right now. Yeah. I don't think, like is not doing it. I just saw a poster for, for some new movie has, isn't he doing it? He's doing a movie. He did, he did a movie. I think he's got another one coming out soon. He's also flying back and forth across the country every two weeks. And I think people get the message. You should talk about caring, but when it comes down to it, if you want to fly across the country every two weeks, go ahead. And we can't keep that up. I think, I mean, I don't want to tell people what to do, but I want to give people the feeling like to get people the experience of, of the joy of like, like, I, I, I don't know if you belong to a CSA, but I belong to a CSA. What's a CSA? Uh, a farm drops off my vegetables to a drop off point every week. I go pick up my vegetables. Uh. And I go to the farm every summer. It's like the highlight of my summer. And well, Where's the farm you go to? It's, well, practically speaking, I get, the, I, I get the bus in Chelsea and it takes me up. So it's like two hours north of the city, almost straight north. Where? And what? What town? I don't know. Um, I mean, I can look it up because it's in here because I went last
0: year. Like um It's
1: almost like straight due north. Like New Paltz. Um Oh wait, it's signed right uh, back. It's near
0: crap. It's just because I'm from around there.
1: Oh, um, do you want me to look it up? No, It's
0: okay. okay. And Listen, it's beautiful. That's the prettiest area of New York's around there. It's really pretty there. And the vegetables are just
1: I mean, my mom always gardened when we were a kid. And her cherry tomatoes are really good. And these blow them out of the water. They're so good. They, like I was up there, I'm talking to farmers. And they're like, this used to be like a million or hundreds of millions, a long time ago, this was like underwater. And that laid down all the silt. And so it's really fertile land, according to them. And, you know, I've been in New York a long time. I've had my party phase and I would go, I had my art up at Crowbar and I was like guest of honor all the time. And I could bring in however many people I want. I was always behind the DJ booth. And if you told me then, the highlight of my summer was going to be picking up potatoes out of the dirt from some farm. I would never have believed you. And I, I would but now I wish I'd done it earlier. And I don't think there's anything special about me. I mean I, I mean, just I'm special. I'm a snowflake, but you know, in this regard, I'm I don't think I, I have like special taste buds that like I like vegetables better than anyone else. I had no idea. And I want to make that available to people.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's let's do it. I'm on. Okay. I'm on board. So, um, what book you got there?
1: Oh yeah. So I brought a copy of my book too because, one, I think you like it. I like the cover. And it also resonates a lot. I I believe that it resonates with a lot of stuff that you talk about and a lot of stuff that you've done. Uh, I think that.
0: Well, you got a lot of good. Uh, I know. I know all of your. Yeah, I think you. <laughs> Let's see. So I know Kevin Cruz, John Lee Dumas, David Berkus, Dory Clark. I know of Daniel Pink. And then, yeah, Seth
1: Seth wrote a book for my first one. Seth Godin wrote a book for my my first one, but he didn't do for this one. He was like, I think you're on your own now. I think you can get it. I was not in the Army, but um, Rip Rip really liked this book. And I really liked his stuff. And he's like a fucking three-star general from the Marines. And um, I've also done some stuff at West Point.
0: Yeah, what have you done at West
1: Point? So I was brought up there by General Lloyd Austin to help. He's the he's like a, a, a special chair of the of the um, leadership department there. And I met him through this woman, Frances Hesselbein, who is a Presidential Medal of Freedom winner, and she she had the chair before him, and maybe two before him is Jim Collins. And then I met him through her. He liked my stuff. He said, come up and talk to the cadets. And I went up and my first time at West Point was with a four-star, four-star general introducing me as his wingman. I was like, I really like this treatment. And uh, I got to meet the head of the leadership department there. And I had him on my podcast. And then he introduced me to the head of the environmental engineering department. And I had him on my podcast. And. Then he put me in touch. I do some environmental leadership consulting, and so he put me in touch with someone to see if maybe I would help them with their environmental leadership. Mm -hmm. And I teach at NYU, and this is the difference between NYU and West Point. When I walk into when when I when I'm teaching at NYU, there's a lot of students and they're sitting like this. Yeah. At West Point, they're like this. That's fine. It's so much more. Also, I teach very experientially, and at NYU. I'm used to students being like, they don't get that I'm saying like, make this project connected to people in your life. It doesn't have to be like people that you care about, affect people that you care about on something that you care about. And they're always choosing something that's academic, and they have to go through that. You'll read and you'll if you if you get to read the book, then you'll see that they. One of the major things I've learned is how to get people to go from this academic. You know, or like it's what their parents want them to do, or it's what like I'll do a Bitcoin app. They're always like doing the latest thing, and you can tell some of them might care about it, but most of them probably don't really care about it that much. And then they switch over to something that they really care about, and they're so disconnected from yeah. what they care
0: about. Yeah, I think uh, I think college is 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 very disconnected from reality. It's kind of like you have to be thrown into the real world a little bit to to know what you care about.
1: Yeah, and. Now, I'm not, you've written a lot, (laughs) you've recorded a lot, so I haven't gone through all of it. But um, what I'm not sure I've seen is to, how to, you're very encouraging and you share very openly of your experience. But um, what I try to do here is walk people through a series of exercises for them to get those experiences themselves. And uh, I think it's pretty effective. Maybe it's not for everybody, but so far it's been, it's worked pretty well. And so it's, it, I, I work a lot on how to teach effectively and how to get people, you know, I've been talking a lot. That's okay. I'm interested. Oh, cool. Uh,
0: and are we rolling? Is this, this, we oh, we're this. rolling. Yeah. We oh. have this for the podcast. Welcome to the leadership in the environment. Uh, <laughs> welcome just, to the leadership in the environment podcast. So don't, let it's Josh James. don't let it change you That that now that we're rolling, just keep, keep telling me. How do you how do you, you know, you know what you were just saying? So let's see, there's
1: so many different access points. I mean, do you know Lenore Eskenazi Or she was called the worst mom in America because she wrote this piece about how um I forget what newspaper it was in, but she said how she lets her nine year old, I think, son, take the subway home. And people are like, that's terrible, that's unsafe. And it's like the safest time ever.
0: Yeah. So it's funny because when I was a kid, you know, my—I remember my older sister was was well, she was older than me, so I don't remember this, but she was telling me how when she was uh, six, seven years old, and this was in the late '60s, early '70s, she would take the subway home, Mm -hmm. and in New York City, which was subway, New York City was a different place then. It was was bankrupt, and it was the highest murder rate in the country, and everything. But that's that's just parenting back then. But for people to say it's parenting now, it's it's shocking. Even though, you know, everybody everybody grew up and became adults back then. Yeah, actually, Lenora started the program called
1: uh, Let Grow, which is for she's okay. Parents want to overparent. Parents, I, I'm not a parent, so I can't say for sure. But it, the the story is that they're they're insecure. If the kid doesn't get into Harvard, or the kid's going to get assaulted in the park, so they they got a helicopter all over the place or snowplow or whatever the phrase is. And so she's got a little jujitsu going on of how to address the parents' insecurities while giving the students or the children something to do. So the homework that this program sets up is the child has to do something by themselves that the parent did when they were a kid. So the parent can't really say you can't do it, but the parent also can't be a part of it. So it's usually something like, I went to the store and bought
0: something or I cooked dinner for the whole family
1: or I went skateboarding on my own or something or I used a rotary
0: dial on a phone. Yeah. I can't think of anything like outrageous I did as a kid. I guess cut school without telling your parents. You should do that kids. Yeah, I don't think
1: I ever cut school and actually here's something that
0: I actually I actually cut school and applied for a job and accepted the job while I was in a high school student. And then I, and then the next day I cut school to go To work at my job. They didn't know I was like below 18. Uh, And, uh, but it was a really boring job. It was a, it was like a call center job, mm -hmm. uh, selling newspapers by phone, cold calling. And they give you a list and you cold call. And then the first day I, I, of work, uh, I went home and my parents had been called by the school and they were very, yeah, they were very upset. They thought I had been kidnapped or whatever. And so they made me quit that job. (laughs) What, oh, so why were you,
1: were you dissatisfied with school? Were you just seeing what you could do? What was, do you remember the motivation?
0: I hate it. I always hated school. Did you like, I mean, you have a PhD, was an MBA. You, you love school. I just always hated it.
1: Well, you know, I, I've reflected on this a lot because I've, I've, I reached the pinnacle of
0: like five Ivy league degrees, which is a lot. And five Ivy league degrees. Yeah. But what are they? Undergrad. Undergrad what? Uh,
1: but uh, like PhD, uh, sorry, undergrad was a BA in major in physics, if that's it. Okay. That, okay. Yeah. And then, and then I got my PhD, but to get a PhD along the way, you get a master's Yeah. and at Columbia, you get an MPhil, which is just kind of along the way, a master of philosophy. So the PhD really got three included with it. And uh-huh. then, and then I started a business and it turns out PhD in physics is great for inventing things, but not so great for running a business. So I went back
0: to get an MBA. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. I think Academics are notoriously bad entrepreneurs, like really bad. Yeah. Can you think of any professor that has created a, I mean, we can think of a lot of college dropouts who have created big companies, mm -hmm. but it's hard to think of any professors or or PhDs that have created big companies. The first one that comes to
1: mind to me is long-term capital management.
0: Right that's so like, that was, that thing, that had Nobel prize winners two Nobel prize winners right I think at Harvard or, or yeah, and, yeah, it was uh, the Shoals, I think from Black well, Black Shoals Shoals. Of, yeah, yeah and uh, I I might be forgetting and I forget but uh they not only went out of business but almost brought the entire economy yeah. <laughs> down with it 1997 so yeah and I look at
1: people look at content for great for what school teaches content is kind of important like you take you know history or math or economics or whatever the behavior to me is is much more important and the 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 social and emotional skills and the behavior that we teach is co- is is compliance through coercion and we have students who emerge and what we've taught them behaviorally is to comply
0: Do you know why you know like the history of oh, the whole of all history that. Of, yeah the, the industrial all that stuff yeah But I think even goes deeper, it's, you know, you had this, this British, you know, we take our educational system in large part from the British education system and the British empire was wide ranging. So, you know, they had Canada, New Zealand, Australia, India, South Africa, and on and on and on. And their education system was geared so that you could take someone straight out of, you know, New Zealand and put them in India. And everything's the same. Like everything they have to do is the same. The roles and rituals and protocols are all the same. So everyone had to be educated in this very like forced. Cookie cutter. Uh, yeah, cookie cutter manner.
1: Yeah. And totally, un- if it served that, I mean, some people call it antiquated, but I don't know if it was how great it was then. And now
0: it's- Yeah, it's never been good. It's all, it was for
1: military purposes. It's the It's the clearest example for me of what, I call this an arch problem. An arch is, it works best. You need to put an arch like in a building, you know, architectural arch Uh, or your foot arch. It works when there's pressure on it. And if you don't have enough pressure on it, the arch will fall. Like if you just put the the stones for the arch on it, I mean, if you cut them just right, they'll stay, but it'll get more stable if you put weight on it. I didn't know that. And if you think that an arch is- How do you know that? uh, How do I know that? Is it like a physics thing? Well, there's some engineering in it. I'm trying to think of the I don't know the first time I came across it but oh no I think I do know it was from the foot because um I think it was when I learned I I do I I run a lot and I switched over to barefoot running the reason I switched to barefoot running I had to wear orthotics and like I, I had back pain when I'd run and then they said if you support an arch it doesn't if you put your, your foot arch is held together with muscles there's bone and muscle and if you if the muscles atrophy the arch will will You'll get flat-footed. I don't know if this is true. I, this is what I read. So, is it accurate or not? You have to ask, ask a podiatrist. So that if you support the arch from below, the muscles will atrophy and you'll worsen your condition. You'll actually, you the arch so
0: orthotics make it worse.
1: That's what I heard. And so I stopped wearing orthotics and I switched to shoes with no heels. So it's basically like a moccasin, uh, you know, minimalist shoes.
0: Yeah. And back pain went away. You know, it uh, took. You know, a you know. Um- who does that? I think is uh, Nasim Taleb. I think um, he w- try because he wants to, you know, be an- his book anti fragile talks yeah. about this. Is that you know you want to be as uh, you want to make it so that when bad things happen, you get stronger from it. Yeah. So he doesn't like to walk on sidewalks, for instance. He'll walk on uh, you know the grass instead of the sidewalk, uh, and he wants to be as close to barefoot as possible, mm-hmm. the way it's intended. So. He wears shoes like that.
1: Yeah. And so I, I also, like I take, the, I take the stairs, not the elevator and things like that. And so I learned that the arch, if it's supported from below, you weaken it. But if you think that it's the opposite, if you think that you should support it when it's, when it's wobbly, then you'll support it more. It'll get more wobbly. So you have to support it more. So when the solution actually, what, what you think is a solution exacerbates the problem you end up either having to support the whole thing on your own or it collapses. Hmm. So another example would be if you think that widening roads or building more roads will reduce traffic, that made a lot of sense in the early 20th century. But I think generally we know now that building more roads creates more traffic. I mean, the short term...
0: I didn't know that. Check it out. Yeah. Like, so if I add, like, take the New Jersey Turnpike. If I add another five lanes to that, it's going to be more traffic even? You'll
1: get a few months of of lower traffic and then people will adjust. And it might take time for people to... uh, to move homes. If it's a, if you build a whole new road, mm. but my general, impra- there are particulars for case by case, but generally you're, you're going to create more traffic. Mm. And, and in terms of education, if you believe that testing and making sure that teachers holding teachers accountable is the way to make sure that students learn, then well, testing, testing doesn't really happen outside of school. And so you're, you're introducing something that's not really necessarily helping the students. And if you think that, not if you think that more testing will re- result in more learning, then you'll test more, and that may reduce the learning, and that will lead to more testing,
0: and then you get yeah, the. That's really interesting. Testing does not occur in any other life situation, really. Yeah, try this out.
1: Any salespeople out there? Go to someone and say, "I'm not really. I, I can't really sell very well, but give me a, a multiple choice test, and I'll show you how how smart I am. And then will buy my product? It testing doesn't really. Okay, in, in in certain fields it does. In, if you're going to be an engineer, there are certain objective measures where to get certified, to get a professional degree.
0: Oh, yeah, like if you go apply for a job at Google, they'll give you like a programming test or something if you're applying to be a programmer.
1: So there it's, it's yeah, at, at upper levels of, of specific tasks. But when we're talking K to 12, it's like testing is a distraction. Yeah. And the SAT is, doesn't correlate with almost anything. Right. And... But it really jams up the anxiety, and then it leads parents to and schools. It creates a system in which people try to teach the test.
0: So, if you if you had to do it all over again, would you get all these degrees? Oh yeah. So that, that's
1: what brought this all up. So um, the way I look at it now, and I have to reflect on it periodically, is that someone put a system in front of me, and I wanted to excel at that system, and I wanted to do the best. So physics, okay, I love physics, and I always loved. I was always oh, what, your PhD in physics astrophysics so I started in, in particle physics but the superconducting supercollider got canceled and so I switched into astrophysics it was a great experiment
0: it was a satellite orbiting the planet that I helped build and uh, it's still working that's pretty cool so something you help build is like in outer space
1: yeah I, we had to build it in a clean room so any you can't if dust got on it it could mess it up but you can't clean it off because cleaning it off could cause a, strat, a scratch so everything, like uh, you had to put stuff over your hair, like a thing over your hair. It was like going to surgery. But it also meant that I, I always wanted to write something. Like I wanted to write my name on one of the things so that when the aliens came, they'd know who to come to. Yeah. <laughs> it would also get me kicked off the experiment if I did that. So right. I didn't do it. Uh, actually, I could say I did it. No one could tell. Yeah, right. So um, physics is like the hardest subject. And a PhD is the highest degree and so i went for the hardest yeah, subject like, high
0: school people degree. always say as a joke it's not like it's nuclear physics
1: yeah so no one can say, no one can take this away right i could do a lot of stupid what do you things you life. You are you a rocket
0: scientist well i happen to yeah <laughs>
1: that's that's my biggest takeaway was that i is that i can no one will ever i can do something really stupid and i never have to worry are people going to think i'm stupid like i'd have to get severely brain damaged before people would really question it because see i stuff. get the
0: benefit of that just by the way i look uh-huh. So nobody, I can't tell people I'm stupid. Nobody believes me. Yeah. You have that Einstein thing going. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, uh, but looking back, the difference between someone else laying out a system and me doing my best at it and the rat race, it's not that different. I mean, I get a certain amount of respect for advanced degrees, but I think it, it disconnects me from a lot of people. and. um it certainly took a lot of time. I think if I could go back, I probably would get a master's in physics because I love the subject so much. And I think it brought me so much. But if you, since then, it's been so much about social and emotional skills. I mean, physics is to what brought me to physics was the, the beauty of nature. And I, you know, a flower, a rainbow, a bumblebee, you know, these things are, have a beauty to them. And I found deeper beauty the more that I would study this stuff. Do an experiment was really, in, in today's day and age, a hundred years ago, it was different. You could build an experiment yourself. You know, you can make an, an, a Nobel Prize winning discovery, just a, a couple of people working on a tabletop experiment. But now it's like 10,000 people, hundreds of nations and billions of dollars in 10 years. And it's that's not really that much fun. I hope it's fun for other people. And um, this is funny. I feel like I'm being interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Uh, well, stop me if I get boring. Um, so it's the beauty of nature. But doing the, doing the experiment stuff wasn't about the beauty of nature. I, I'd passed that point. Now it was just a lot of engineering and
0: debugging. But getting the PhD allows you to open some doors, allows you to teach at NYU, for instance.
1: Well, I'm, I'm not teaching physics, though. I'm teaching leadership. And that came from starting companies. And that came from getting success in there. And also putting a lot into how to teach. But actually learning how to teach gets me great student reviews. But it also gets the dean to look at my syllabus, and, and she keeps saying, "Like, where's the theory? You got to be teaching theory." And I'm like, "I will put any of my students against someone that you taught straight theory to."
0: Well, what is theory? My working, okay, in physics, so you it's teach one thing. leadership, yeah, right. So yeah, physics, I understand theory because there's like rules of physics that are the universe has created. But like, what's leadership theory? All right, I'll give you two answers for that. For not in the academic world, I think theory
1: is after you've done it for a while, you kind of figure out how to, you figure out what works and what doesn't, and you make a
0: a model in your head for what works. And what if like a thousand things work depending on the situation and they're contradictory to each other?
1: That's generally the case. People still will figure out what works for them. The thing is, if I tell you what works for me, I don't think that helps you learn What, what I actually learned from was experience. I've coalesced it into a theory. If I give you the answers, that doesn't help you do it. It's like, I can't, I mean, in piano, there's musical theory. If I teach you musical theory, it doesn't help you play piano.
0: But again, like like, uh, musical theory in, in piano could be argued, there's some primal evolutionary aspect that makes certain chord structures happy, sad, you know, classical, not classical, you know, rock, blues, but it's almost like evolutionary, our response to, to musical theory, just like with physics, it's sort of like, you know, carved out by the the big bang, the, the theory of physics, but, but leadership theory is so, uh, there, there is really no theory. Like you say, it's your experience is different from, from anybody else. Do you look at every single CEO in the country or any leader in the country? They're all different. Well, academically you could
1: teach. I would say that, leadership still works on our emotions. It's, it's motivating people. It's working with
0: the, as well as yourself. So it's working with the human emotions. Maybe system. it's motivating people. Some people, uh, uh, you know, when motivation sounds positive, but I guess it could also be negative. But when you, when you say motivating, I usually think someone says, look, we we're, we're, we have this big vision. We're going to create self-driving cars. Are you all in this with me? And, and you're motivating them. You know, I'm, I'm simplifying, mm-hmm. but it could also be, Hey, if you don't do your job, we're going to fire you. And every year we're going to fire, you know, the bottom third of the company. That's that's then then you're lead you, you that you're leading by fear. And that could be successful. It's it's unclear whether that's I mean, I wouldn't lead that way. That's not my style, but that has certainly worked for our other people. Jack Welch at GE would fire the bottom 10% every year. I would
1: I would distinguish between leadership and management there. The the second thing you said was more management. That's. But he still, you know, okay. So, so just, he also led, right? So when he would when he would meet people, he'd also sometimes or often give handwritten notes to people about specific about what the interaction was like. That's more leadership because that's not directly related to the job, but it's going to make that person. It may f- hopefully make. The, I, I assume he was trying to make that person
0: feel inspired or more dedicated or more
1: loyal or something like
0: that. Yeah, gosh, that's such a good idea. I wish I had the energy to follow up like that. Like, how does he? Let's say he meets 50 people in a day. He writes 50 notes. I'm not sure how many he would do. And of course, he's got a team to make sure the stuff,
1: ha- like he can just scribble it out and like people take care of it, I yeah. guess. Uh, so he would both lead and manage. And I, I think leadership without management, you can either do it yourself, just be someone who has leadership skills and management skills, or you can have someone to compliment you. Oftentimes there's like a, a visionary CEO and a and COO who gets things done. So if you have leadership without management, that, I tend to think of that as like dreamers just, just dream. And if you have management without leadership, I call that the DMV. It may be very effective at getting something done, but I don't want to work there. It doesn't seem like your place to work either. Right. And so I think you need a mix, but, um, as for the leadership part, I think that people are much more predictable than, or people's behavior is much more predictable than I think a lot of people think. I think a lot of people think that there's, we have a rational side and we have an emotional side and the rational side is rational. And therefore, the emotional side must be irrational and unpredictable. But, it, but our emotional system is systemic. It's, it's much more
0: predictable than you'd expect. But if you... And that's kind of you, the basis of, like, Daniel Kahneman's original, re, like, all these cognitive biases. I mean, the whole field of psychology is based on that, but particularly this more recent, you know, study on cognitive biases that you could very easily predict the ways in which people are irrational, you know, hence Dan Ariely's book, Predictably Irrational, and, and so on.
1: Yeah, the, and although one thing, the difference between my perspective and his perspective is that I believe that he's looking to understand and just study, but not actually influence people, not lead people. And my goal is to influence people and lead people. How come? Well, in as a teacher, my goal is if a student doesn't change their behavior, I don't think they've really learned that much if it's just a bunch of facts went in their head, so then I don't call that learning. If it doesn't change your life in some measurable way, that's not learning. So I want to change your life in some measurable way, which means change the behavior in some way.
0: Why do, you think, why do you think people sign up for your class? All
1: right, There's different classes. There's one on leadership. There's one on, on initiative or entrepreneurship. Uh, and they're always, they're not required. So people want either to lead more or they want to, and some people want to lead themselves more. Some people want to lead others more. Sometimes they just want a promotion. Uh, in entrepreneurship, they generally, I think that they, when it's undergrads, they're kind of excited about, hey, this is kind of cool stuff. But usually they're not ready to start doing it yet. Although I'm very happy to say that I've had several students come to me and say, after class, I really want to do this thing. And I'm, I'm thinking about dropping out. Now, I have enough issues with my dean already. <laughs> so I have to tell them, if you're going to act on that, get the advice from your parents. I think that's a fair thing to do. But um, when it's older students, when I teach in the school of professional studies, then I think it's people, they're frustrated with their jobs. They want to do something different. They want to get something started. They want to know, they want to do something. Is that audience growing, do you think? It's tough to say. You know, one of the things in this book is that uh, the New York Times put out a bunch of, there's a few articles talking about the amount of, the number of companies below, like that are less than a year old is at lowest point since the seventies. It's lower than in generations. And people argue with me about this. I'm like, I'm just telling you the data. And they're like, it's impossible because you know, Uber and and all these Airbnbs and stuff like that, it seems like it's really big, but I tend to think it's more like we got some great athletes and 70% obesity and or overweight and obesity. I think we have some really big stars, but overall, I think the, the, taking initiative and having, developing the skills to, to understand, find something in yourself that you want to work on that will help others. That they'll support you back. And to act on that. I think that's low. I think that's going down.
0: How do you think people, what's your method for fi- helping people find skills, the skills that they love and that they're good at? Because, you know, again, we we follow this script all the way through to the age of 22 or sometimes 25, 26, 27, depending on grad school and other things. And then maybe the first few years of job takes you into your thirties. So suddenly you can wake up in your thirties and you realize, oh my gosh, I need to find some skills that I both love and that I can get good at. What's the technique for finding those skills?
1: Well, I mean, the, the simplest answer is that book right there is initiative because that's exactly what, I mean, the first half of the book, part one is about the situation in the world. For example, the the New York Times stuff that I just talked about and why Shark Tank is, it's designed, it, it says it's to promote entrepreneurship, but it's really to get, it's dramatic. You know, it's to get advertising and yeah. more power to them. I think that's great. If people, if it entertains people and it's supposed to entertain people, great. But it's going to get a lot of people who want drama to do stuff that might not be the best business people. And some people who don't like drama might not start it. And and it's teaching slightly different skills and it, all sorts of stuff of why business plan competitions. You know, I've seen a lot of students with great projects that might be a nonprofit or might be a community organization. And then they hear about this business plan competition and they see the money on the line and they start changing it into how can I scale this really big and how can I make it? It may, sometimes it might be better that way, but oftentimes not. And we've turned entrepreneurship into this, this spectacle and great for some people. I don't want to take that away from them, but I think the majority of us it's not serving us well. And the second half of the book is the exercises that I've honed over years of working with clients and students of step-by-step how to go from having no idea whatsoever and very simple early exercises to, at the end, you're talking to people, valuable people in your field, treating you as a peer with a vested interest in your success. And there's all these steps of how to do it, but it's experiential learning. It's, um, by analogy, if you're going to learn how to play piano, I wouldn't suggest getting lectured on piano theory. I would suggest playing some scales and getting a teacher who can walk you through these scales. And once you master the scales and go to more difficult scales, when you master that, go to well, you, you do stand-up. I mean, how did you get good at stand-up? Uh, I mean... Just, as a performance-based field, you know, as something where you have to perform in front of others.
0: Right. So it's an interesting question because, uh, you know, what's a metric for success is very hard to define in stand-up as opposed to probably, I mean, piano, uh, is there's, there's some metrics of success and then there's more simple things like games or sports, like let's say running where there's an easy metric for success, but, but stand-up, uh, I guess going up on stage a lot, uh, watching a lot of comedians perform and trying to kind of mimic them Mm -hmm. in private, of course. And, uh, uh, talking to a lot of comedians. Whenever I encounter a problem on stage, I find someone I can ask, like, what would you do in this situation? So I get kind of that feedback. I I take um, video of almost all my sets uh, and then look at them later. So I tried something brand new on, I guess it was Saturday or Sunday, and I have a video of it. And I, and I, I thought it went well on stage. People were laughing. But when I looked at the video later, I saw oh, I did this one thing over and over again that I probably shouldn't do and uh, uh, a way of moving. And uh, so I'll improve when I try it tonight. So these elements of,
1: of performing, getting advice from others, reflection, iteration, these are, these are the things that of, of all fields that are performance-based and expressive and emotional and uh, social, active. And so I put it into, I mean, I... I I worked it into a linear system, like first do this, then do this, then do this of basically what you talked about, but a specific, a specific order of doing it so that it tends to work pretty well. And I, I think that's also, I mean, that's my, my leadership book, is which came up before this was a similar, it's different exercises, but the same structure, but it's also the same structure. If you want to learn how to act, if you want to do the military, it's always practice the
0: basics and advance and get feedback and reflect and I remember when I was taking piano lessons, there was one exercise that always really impressed me because it wasn't just, hey, here's scales, play them as well as you can, or here's a piece, play it as well as you can, practice it over and over. It was a little bit different. It was, you know, do the scales, but put each or do the piece, but play each note as kind of heavy as you can. Like Really press down on the keys as hard as you can, and then the next note, and then the next note, and I guess that would somehow build some sort of muscle memory in a different way. I don't know. I never understood the reason for it, but it seemed to work really well.
1: I think that something that if I didn't see it so consistently, I would think it was magic. That the early exercises are very mechanical. You know, put this key on that, put this finger on that key, this finger on that key, and then as you keep practicing, at some point. Your voice emerges. It stops being about, it stops being mechanical. I mean, to play a musical instrument, I think a lot of people want to express themselves. They want to express emotion. They want to, you know, play their heart out. But you can't start that way. And but it happens. It's this weird thing that, the amazing thing that happens is that you practice very mechanical things, and then eventually your you come
0: out. So this is a dumb question, but do you think the air guitar? could be just as musical as playing the guitar in terms of what you just said, in terms of expressing oneself. So So, like the piece, you're listening to music, say, mm -hmm. and you're playing air guitar along with it. And I'm being very serious here. Uh, uh, You you, you listen to a beautiful song, so you get that pleasure. And anybody watching you gets that pleasure. But you could express, and let's say you don't know how to play the guitar, you could uh, express yourself (laughs) by going along with the song accurately and then doing, you know, body movements or facial movements or hand movements or whatever that allows you to express yourself. Do you think that could be just as much an art form as actually playing the guitar? And well, this
1: is not as stupid a
0: question as it sounds.
1: I know you're probably reacting. This is partly smile on my face because
0: I can't help but think of Doonesbury in the seventies. Is that where did you? No. Okay, he did. Did he play it, there? I mean, I, 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 watch, I mean, I, I read that comic strip all the time. Uh, it was one of my favorite. Uh-huh. That was probably my favorite comic strip back in the let's say 80s, uh, but uh, I don't remember. Okay, I was wondering if that was
1: a, so. Um, I think that the the category, as I describe it, is active, social, emotional, expressive, performance based. Something that has
0: those things. So wait, active, yeah. Expressive, so, yeah. Emotional, social, social,
1: emotional, expressive, and performance based.
0: So okay, so so active. Erica Duhar is certainly active. Yeah. Um expressive social social social. so yeah you do it in front of people Mm
1: -hmm. social emotional
0: emotional yeah if you're playing let's say uh, i'm just going to make it what's a good guitar song like uh stairway (laughs) or stairway to heaven uh let's say you're playing that so uh or you could do like uh some blues yeah yeah so so it can be very emotional to you the song that you're hearing and then your your personal body's interpretation of it when you're doing air guitar.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So what's... Expressive, emotional, performance-based. Performance-based? Yeah. So, okay, yeah. So performance-based is tricky because, again, how do you measure whether you, it's a good performance or bad? Yeah, I, I think guess if you're if just you doing it sing, by
1: yourself in your room, it's not going to get...
0: But if once you do it in front of other people, then... So if they enjoy it, and I guess also you can say, are you syncing correctly? Or if you're not syncing correctly with the song, there should be a reason for it. Like mm-hmm. in any kind of artistic performance, there should be a reason for every movement, everything that yeah. happens. Like a, f- in a piece of writing, there should be a reason every word is there and every word that's not there, there's a reason those words are not there. So with performance in front of people, there should be a reason for every movement, for every sound you make, for every movement of the body and, and so on. So that you can argue that the air guitar is performance-based. So you're either syncing to the song and, and then expressive around that or you're not syncing. And so... If you don't have a reason for that, then it's a bad performance. But if you have a reason, it could be a very clever performance.
1: I think, yeah, I, I mean,
0: I... So someone, are you saying those things are the criteria for a good performance? Those are the, those
1: are a field that is, that has those criteria is when you, you're going to start, but those are the ones that I try to teach. I, I use the the model of fields like that. How we learn those is how I teach leadership and how I teach entrepreneurship.
0: Because I think those are, active, social, emotional, expressive, performance-based. Are, are they, is that in here? Is that, is that list in here? Yeah. Where, where can I, what page? Do I use the term ASEP? Because my acronym is A-S-E-E-P. And. Let me see. I'll check the index. So, sorry, if this is, uh, oh, there's no index. Um, so if it's it, in there, it's in the
1: first, it's definitely in my leadership book. But I might have, because I call it method initiative and I call it method learning. So I switched the name from ASEP to method because method acting is, there's already a term one field already named this style of learning, so I use method acting. I use, I call it method learning. Oh, and method acting, they talk about those factors. Well, that's my. It's not scientific here. This is just me that I it was like, what makes acting? How we learn to act? How we learn to sing? How we learn to do military? How we learn to do sports?
0: Do you mind if I write in that? You gave me this book. Would you mind if I write in it? I always want to write those things. So yeah. what's what's the five the factors? Of- A S E E P. So active. A S E E P. Active. Social. Social. Emotional. Emotional.
1: Expressive. Expressive. And performance based. So, now I have to say mm-hmm. that people don't value books that they don't pay for.
0: Uh, I think you got that from my book.
1: <laughs> yes. And so I was going to say, you should pay for it and then I'll pay you back when All you right. finish reading it. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I
0: have an idea. This is very valuable. Here's a hundred North Korean won. Wow, uh, Kim jong Il, the father, is uh-huh. on it. It's issued in 1978. It is valid legal currency in North Korea. It's worth 100 won is equivalent to about 30 dollars in North Korea. Don't spend it all in one place if you and, happen to go to Pyongyang. And uh, but if you do try to spend it here, you could go to jail.
1: Do you know about me in North Korea? No, about my two trips there.
0: No, <laughs> and playing ultimate
1: frisbee in so the first. first annual- do you recognize that currency then? I don't remember if I've seen it, but I think this is Kim Il Sung. And uh, I didn't. I didn't leave with any North Korean currency. Okay. I don't know if I was allowed to leave. with it. Yeah. Were you allowed to leave with it?
0: Uh, I can't say how I got this. Okay. But. So um, great. So and then I'll give this back to you
1: when yeah, you read the book. The book.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, or not. If I find value in the book, I'll let you keep that thirty dollars worth of North Korean currency. <laughs> I'll spend it. I'll spend it wisely. I'll spend it. I'll try not to go to jail. Well, why were you in North Korea?
1: Uh, have you you had fun of their flag ever
0: you must have been on Jordan Harbinger show
1: yeah yeah so Jordan and I go back 15 years I don't know a long time and one time we were talking I think it was for my birthday he was like happy birthday and he goes "Uh, do you want to go to North Korea and one thing I know if Jordan Harbinger invites you to something Jordan Harbinger if you say the word baller he is like he's the the definition of a baller and I was like of course I'm going to go In in my head I was like I don't have time I don't have money I can't do this and it was one of the best things I've ever done. So when we went a second time, I was like, I couldn't make it the third time. But it was one of the, I mean, it was him and, uh, have you had Neil Strauss on your show? Or have you yeah, been? yeah. Yeah, so it was us and um, it was an amazing experience. It was just phenomenal.
0: How did you know, 15 years ago, how did you know Jordan Harbinger? Uh, from the pickup world.
1: Because I, I was reading stuff about, you, you've you written a whole lot of, of, how do I put it? Rejection from women and things like that yeah. and and I was like, that sounds familiar <laughs> and and so when someone gave me a copy of Neil's book the game, I was like, I read it, and I thought, well he was his situation with women was like like mine is now, and I don't want to be like that, but I want that magnitude of change that he went through in a different direction. I was like 35 at the time, so I wasn't going to go out like you're 50 I'm forty uh, uh, let's say today's the 17th. So in three days,
0: I will turn 48. Wow. Okay. You look very good for 48. I thought maybe you were in your 30s. Uh, I'm,
1: yeah, I'll turn 48. It's going to be the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing, the 48th anniversary of me, and the 75th anniversary of the closest to successful attempt on Hitler's life in
0: 1944. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. Um, do you think running? Uh, I hear running is good, really good for keeping biological age low. Well, physical
1: exercise. Yeah, I exercise every day.
0: And, uh, do you know, do you know why exercise keeps, uh, the biological age low? I think, you know, why? I mean, I, I'm, I'm asking if you have any theories, but I have oh. a theory about it, but I'm curious about what your theories are.
1: Well, I look at it slightly differently because I want to make exercise normal and lack of exercise abnormal. So I would say, why does lack of exercise make people look older? Okay. Why? And I think because the, the cells are not like the, the tissues aren't going to maintain themselves as well because they're not kept. Fresh and I think um, I think people who are fit, if they look younger, they probably look. That's the average age. That's what like I might look younger than the average forty eight year old in America in nineteen and in, in two thousand nineteen, but I think I probably would look average for forty eight before
0: all the packaging, all the food packaging, and all the sedentary lifestyle and so oh, forth. yeah, you think? I think so. So even though uh, I mean, people always say average lifespan is down you know, in the, you know, I mean, is, was down then and has gone up, but I think that's all because of infant mortality has gone yeah. down. Is that, is that the correct statistic? Like if you take out kids who die before five, let, let's say you start lifespan, like you only counted for anybody who lives past five, would you say lifespan has gone up or stayed the same or gone down? My impression is that way back when, like before,
1: um, farming, I guess, probably if you made it to 30, you'd make it to how, however old we get to today, but yeah, I think there's a big selection effect
0: that I'm letting in information that I want to support my lifestyle. So I, you might be right. So back then, you would have to factor out anybody who died from a violent death. So so because I think something like a quarter of people died from a violent death. Yeah. Uh, or at least evidence in in Yuval Harari's book *Sapiens*. He I, he says some statistic like that. Yeah, and Stephen Pinker. Yeah. Yeah. So so. Uh right, Steven Pinker. Um, what's the book? Uh, better
1: nature's better angels of. Yeah. Wait, better nature,
0: better angels of our nature. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Every century shows violence has gone down mm-hmm. per per capita, but um, uh, uh, I think in terms of exercise, I think what happens is is that exercise, the body's like, oh my gosh, there's something really dangerous happening. Mm-hmm. Like if you're doing vigorous exercise, all these things happen in the body to react because the body thinks you're like killing yourself. Mm -hmm. So you start sweating, your blood pressure goes up, your heart is beating faster. So it's basically almost like, uh, we're, we're, we're under a potential nuclear attack. All systems stay (laughs) alert. And I think exercise that, um, you know, hold off on everybody. We got to deal with this situation first, hold off on everybody kind of going to their night courses and, you know, improving and learning anything. So I think that Happens in the body when you exercise, so it keeps this like, uh, it it actually stops the the growth and and um maturing of cells because the cells are just on alert all the time. Mm-hmm. If you regularly vigorously exercise, like by you know sweating five days a week, like exercise that makes you sweat five days a week, mm-hmm. and and that keeps biological age down. This studies show
1: could be I don't yeah. know, yeah, although um. It makes me think of of. Uh, there's something you asked me earlier. First of all, also um, too much rest. I think is is another arch problem. If you think that, um, like if you get if you rest, and then that makes you feel less energy, less healthy, and you think, "Oh, I better rest more," then you can get into a lot of rest. But and and then you just keep getting more and more lethargic. And I have friends who just they they very rarely get exercise. And mm-hmm. they they say, but if I exercise, I'll get injured, so I, I better not exercise. And then, although I find that the people who exercise more get injured more, not less. So, yeah, I think you have to stress the system. Uh, you stress, as opposed to distress, good stress, stress mm-hmm. that helps you. EU stress is that? Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, I, I want to. Can I switch topics? Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about the environment because it's something that that. Right. Uh, um. I like to talk about, and how come? It... Ah, great question. I mean, first at the beginning because it's the beauty of nature is something. It's one of the most beautiful things out there, right? And uh, I used to joke but
0: that, but there's... that really. I mean, just I don't mean to play the devil's advocate. I totally agree with you, but I think nature is always. You know, if you go to a place with nature right now we're in New York city. So like I probably won't see a tree today, for instance, Mm -hmm. but if you go to a place, any other place in the world where there's trees, it's kind of always been beautiful. It's not like, is there any area that is no longer as other than urban, heavily urban areas like New York or I don't know, Shanghai or whatever. Are there any areas of the planet that have gotten worse in terms of their natural beauty? Yeah. I mean, well, first, I would, and this is not an argument. This is not a political argument. This is not about global warming or anything like that. Because for all we know, global warming is going to create a very beautiful, a very beautiful Arctic circle if, it, mm. if there's trees that start growing there. But uh, I'm just curious if you think, you know, something has happened that has made some place less beautiful.
1: Yeah. Well, first, I I think that when humans, our, our ancestors, way back hundreds of th- seventy thousand years ago, when they were populating the planet. I think they probably went to the places that were most life-supporting and most beautiful. And that's where the towns formed and that's where the cities formed. And I think, pick a major city. It's probably one of the, was once one of the most beautiful fertile areas. And now they're the least fertile areas.
0: Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting theory. So you can argue, obviously, Egypt, you know, maybe some cities there were at one point. The Nile
1: Delta was very fertile.
0: Yeah. And New York City. I don't know if you have ever seen
1: the like the projection of not projections but like rejection. But I agree. I
0: I agree. So that's why I kind of counted out all urban areas. So which I know is a big part of the human population, but it's not in terms of surface area. It's not a huge. If you add up all the urban cities on the planet, it's not. It's not that much of the surface area. Yeah. So So I I'm trying to think of like is there any big swaths of land that you would say like you know, like Northern Canada, they have gotten less or, or like most of the Russia that have gotten less natural beauty over time.
1: Oh, well, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to say in my life and then I'll say a more general case. So in my life, when I was a kid growing up in Philadelphia, there'd be bluebirds and wrens and jays and all sorts of different birds. It's now just pigeons and sparrows. It's okay. just pigeons Why do pigeons you think that's more people, more urban, the urban areas grown out more. There used to be a park at the end of the block. that's now a few houses. So there's less places for them to go. Now in, if you put a park like near me in the village, there's a school that put a green space on its roof. And right up there, there's like bees buzzing around, but not a, like nature will get back. If it can, it will regrow if it can. Uh, but I think, yeah, we're just more people taking up more space. And so the city of Philadelphia, there used to be farms near me that would, we'd, we put up, put out our food scraps, and they pick up the food scraps to feed the pigs. But that, and that's now the farms aren't around anymore.
0: So, so, yes, more people. There's more people. Like we in in our lifetime, the planet has gone from two billion people or so to seven billion people. So There's an extra five billion people. Um, and I guess we we spread out. But even seven billion people is not a lot in terms of what we take up of the surface of the planet. So uh, I was reading something. If you if you just stand everyone up and give them five square feet around them, you could fit everybody in the world in Texas. I've read, read some statistics. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's say roughly Texas and well, roughly you, five you square need, feet.
1: Then you need farmland for them to to grow their food. Yeah. And if that farmland is now taking... You can't just do that with farmland near there because that's not a farmland. And farmland being was one thing. You have to have ocean space to get the fish and so forth.
0: So a person... what what if if, what if you could, What if everybody starts, you know growing food with stem cells so you no longer need farmland? That's a very deep question. So, Because that, that's going to happen. Let's say within 20, 30 years, all food will be grown in a lab. Then as, we, if, as our culture is now, then we'll
1: keep growing until we hit other limits. When you make things more efficient, you, the general trend, as I see it, is that when we make things more efficient, it makes the individual use more um, the, ca- the case of that thing that like that burger will use less resources to make it if it's a lab grown meat, but
0: then people have more of those the the case it's easier for me to describe the the well like efficiency tends to always grow fast so far efficiency has always grown faster than or productivity has always grown faster than the human population so so uh, everybody always worried when there was one billion people on the planet. That by the time there was two billion, you know I think one famous economist said in the sixties you know the the united kingdom's gonna everybody's gonna starve to death, and now we're at seven billion people, nobody in the United Kingdom starves to death, and we have more food than ever so there have been there's
1: there's also more total waste than ever mm-hmm. and that was never an issue. we could always move away from the waste or we could expand and and that wasn't a problem but we we've run out of places to expand to. I mean, you can talk about going to Mars or the moon, but that doesn't clean
0: up the earth. And what about throwing it in the ocean? And I'm, I'm not even, I'm being, uh, have you been to the beach to... recently?
1: I mean, everyone's seen the pictures of, of the plastic on the beaches. Mm. It's, I mean, I, I was talking to a friend of mine in, in Bali. He lives there. And I said, I said, is there plastic in the ocean there? And what got me wasn't what he answered. It was how he answered. It was like, of course, of course there's plastic in the ocean here. There's always plastic in the ocean. It was once one of the most beautiful places. And some of the most covered up beaches are in like the Henderson islands, which are like
0: thousands of miles from the okay. city. So that's a great example of, of something that's less beautiful. So, yeah, so oceans uh, are considered and beaches are considered very beautiful. And there's almost a primal reason why we love the ocean and staring at it. Uh, so I um, talked
1: about, I talked about
0: uh, my personal experience with blue jays and stuff in,
1: near my house in Philadelphia. Also on a, I didn't realize this, When before the before steamboats, when it was just sailboats going across the Atlantic or across oceans, there were times when there were schools of fish so dense they would stop the boats. There were walruses in the Thames River in London, there were birds, flocks of birds that would take days. I mean, we you probably know about the passenger pigeon, but there were lots of birds like that. It would take days for one flock to go overhead. Now, you could say. That's not necessarily any more beautiful than a blue sky. Maybe if the birds aren't there, I no, can see I something that's else
0: beautiful. Beautiful, and, it's, and you're saying that doesn't happen anymore? I don't know of any bird flocks that take days to go overhead. Why do you think that has happened?
1: I think there's a lot of things. I mean, it's, it's what makes culture, culture. I mean, certainly, I think the, I think the passenger pigeon tasted good. <laughs> I think it was easy to get. And then I don't think people realize, you know, in
0: the West, we had. So have we eaten all the passenger pigeons? Because I, like, if you go to a restaurant, I've never seen passenger pigeon on the menu. Oh, it was gone. I think the last one's died in captivity. I forget when. I
1: don't know if, I don't think it was in my lifetime. Okay. Uh, but, you know, there's a, here are a few things in our culture. We have something that says, um, a book that says, man should have dominion over nature. And dominion means dominate. I mean, now, of late, it's changed to stewardship people are reinterpreting dominion. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the concept, I was just reading about this, the concept of extinction is very recent. I didn't realize this. People thought there was this idea of of the, the great chain of being, I think, from rocks to God. This is a Christian concept. There was everything had its place. And so the idea of an extinction would mean a link wasn't there. And then the whole chain would break. So Thomas Jefferson when they came here, I mean, people found um, fossils of, of woolly mammoths, but they didn't find any woolly, woolly mammoths. So, how could this be? They figured there must be woolly mammoths somewhere. We haven't discovered the whole continent yet, so it must be somewhere. And only later did it dawn on people the first idea of extinction wasn't that we could cause extinctions, it was there were things before that don't exist anymore. But maybe they thought it was earlier humans. You know they would see like trilobites or or dinosaurs, and they're like, "Well, there's nothing like this today." And to some extent, they could say, if they, to the extent they believed in spontaneous generation of life, they thought there was spontaneous generation of rocks, and the same thing that would cause life to form things would also form rocks in certain shapes. But then that didn't make sense, and they could say, "Why were there seashells on the tops of mountains? Well, there was a big flood, so that's why." But eventually, they started realizing things don't exist that used to exist, and only later, like in the twentieth century. I believe, did they realize we're causing extinctions. Things can disappear and never, ever come back. And I don't think that's a, I think for most of human history, that would be a very foreign concept. In fact, people would argue against it. Thomas Jefferson argued against it. It, it. He said it couldn't be possible.
0: Well, what I mean, clearly there's, there's like mass extinction events. Like, you know, there's probably a billion different species of dinosaur and they all got went extinct mm-hmm. at some point. Yeah, you know, due to a whatever was a a big meteor hitting the the earth or whatever, mm-hmm. and then, I mean, in just in human history again, I'm referring to, Yuval Harari Sapiens, but he talks about when uh, humans first encountered Australia for the first time.
1: Yeah, within, all the big mammals gone. All right, the big animals 2000 gone. Years, yeah,
0: everything that can harm us, we destroy. We, m- me, yeah. and my friends in Australia, we destroyed. Yeah,
1: and so. You could argue whether that's more or less beautiful, I mean, there are glaciers retreating in the Alps and everywhere and lots of places, and whether that's more beautiful or not, I can't say i mean there's it it, it seems to me that Earth's ability to sustain life is decreasing, and if we're over that limit and we lower that ability, then the population's probably going to drop. That's what motivates one of the things that motivates me it possibly in my lifetime uh you know the the head of Brazil wants to sell off a lot of the rainforest, and what we replace it with could be more beautiful. I'm not sure. It probably will lower the Earth's ability to sustain life, and and human society.
0: So like like a, the rainforest, obviously, is so thick, and I guess I don't know. The, the trees create oxygen. Do you think a lot of the oxygen on the Earth? I, I don't really know the science behind this. Like, what's What's the major? What's the number one issue with the rainforest? Number one, uh, I think there's a lot of issues, but I
1: think one of the biggest is that. So tree, you know, plants are mostly made out of air. I don't know if you know this. It, yeah. it was a really cool thing when I discovered this. Is one of the things like I like about nature, is that when you put a seed in the ground, I thought it took dirt and made itself out of the dirt, but it doesn't. It takes in carbon dioxide, takes the carbon and makes itself out of the carbon and and exhales oxygen. So the
0: carbon that the tree is made out of is from the air. So trees are made out of air. I see. So, and then, and then it expels the oxygen that goes all around the world that we breathe. Yeah. So if you chop down the tree and burn it or let it decompose, that the, carbon goes back up into the air. And there's less air being produced because it's the one less growing tree. So there's, there's less carbon dioxide pulled out of the atmosphere
1: and more carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere. So as it, the science seems to say that the more carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere, the more it will heat up the planet. And our society is pretty optimized for an Earth as it's been in the past. And it looks like it's going to be changing in the future. And some people thought for a long time, well, we'll just move kind of more north. But it doesn't look so simple. It looks like those things that are in the north that are going to release release yet more greenhouse gases. And when you have something optimized, for, this is something that I would think business people would really get because if you have a if you have a factory and you're producing widgets or cars or something, and you operate it at 100% efficiency, then you can be maximally profitable. Except if something breaks, then the whole factory has to shut down because everything's optimal, optimized. So instead, what you do is you operate it at like 80% efficiency, and you have uh, spare parts lying around that you don't really need. But if something breaks, then you can. Operate the rest. You can use up the the stuff in store, and then while you fix the machine that's broken, and then run a little overtime and get back on track. But you don't have to. Your shipments all go out on time. And if we're running the planet at optimal efficiency, then any small small problem can mess up everything. Hmm. The thing is, you don't lose profitability; you lose population. Now, how much you value other people's lives is that's people's that's up to people to decide for themselves.
0: But, you know, I feel like, I feel like this theory that we're going to lose population at some point is like, you know, this descends from, you know, Thomas Malthus and, and Malthusian economics, just that at some point, we're going to reach some limit of resources and human and human population. And things are going to basically, uh, kind of decline from there. And it's never, every time it's been predicted and every year or decade it's been predicted, it's never been correct. And we end up having more resources than ever, despite, despite all the fears that came before. And I just wonder, that's, that's, what, that's what makes me not a skeptic of climate change or global warming. It's not really that. It's just a skeptic of, of doom and gloom. Because it does seem like there's, there's no limit to our cognitive resources to solve these issues. Now, I think the people who make the next set of predictions, they say there is a limit, that we won't be able to think our way out of the next problem. And I just always wonder like, if that's true, because the past 20 times it hasn't been true. So it seems... And I'm willing to believe it is true. I just don't know. I don't know anything about it. It seems very compelling to me. Uh, I mean,
1: here's where the physics comes back into play after all the years of not doing it, is when i look at the the data that i find compelling says that uh we can always, we could always substitute 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 like the green revolution it we substituted for sunlight we brought in fossil fuels to make plants grow and so the calories that we eat we're getting actually from in the ground uh, uh from uh, fossil fuels in the ground and we can you can always substitute for lots of different things but you can't substitute for energy from a physics perspective it's like you can't substitute for that and now we're getting to the point where that's the limiting
0: Factor. Do you think, uh, like, what, what do you think is sort of the, I mean, is there like, for instance, nuclear energy, is that a clean energy solution that's extremely powerful to power all electric grids and so on, as opposed to oil and coal and all that? Well, it has less greenhouse emissions. It has other issues. Uh, to me, the bigger thing well, is... What's the other issues?
1: Well, historically, there's a lot of waste that comes out of it. There's Right. But a lot of
0: that waste uh, could be reused, right? But it's law that you can't reuse nuclear waste. So what if we got rid of that law and, and reuse the nuclear waste for, to make energy? It's, I
1: think there's a bigger issue, which is not. Here's a picture that I'm not going to answer your question directly, but this is, um, they talk a lot about vertical farming. And put you can get farming in cities for certain greens. And Now, the thing is, if you have a vertical farm, the sunlight only hits the top layer. It doesn't get to the lower ones, but these are indoors anyway. So these LEDs. So the thing is, how are you powering the LEDs? Well, if it's coming from fossil fuels, you haven't really gained much because now you're burning fossil fuels to create plants. Why bother doing it vertical farming? Okay, what if you get it from, from, you could get it from solar, but if you're getting from solar, you're going to, the sunlight that hits the solar panel, you might as well have the greens there because you're going to lose, in the you're going to lose Energy from sunlight, tr- turning it into electrical power, sending that power to the vertical farm, and then using and lighting the LED. It's inefficient. You might as well just farm out there and not use the solar power. Well, they say, what if you use nuclear power? Okay, nuclear power might work. But once you do that, let's say you could get, say you had nuclear and you could, it was totally clean and effectively limitless. I think culturally speaking, I don't think people are going to spend much time in the sun anymore. Like, we're not going to connect. It's, it, it disconnects us from nature.
0: But, but uh, I think people. I spend, might have skipped a few steps in the middle there. Yeah, no. I, but I get yeah, it. But people people spend time. People are sort of disconnected from where they get energy. If you ask somebody what powers the your city's electric grid, ninety nine percent of people don't know the answer. They don't know whether to say oil, coal, or oh, isn't just electricity. You know, rubbing two sticks mm-hmm. together. So they don't. People don't really know. So I think people are really disconnected from uh, uh, their their physical world and uh, what creates it. And so I don't know if people would say, "Oh, well, I'm not going to spend any time in the sun because I don't have to anymore because nuclear energy." Oh,
1: it's is. not that people
0: will make that choice.
1: It's mm-hmm. that businesses it, will just switch over to using more and more nuclear, and will power all will will grow all plants using that energy instead of the sun, and then we'll do more
0: and more things will become more and more indoors. All right, so so but now you're talking about you're 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 theorizing uh, maybe then they'll just find other ways to get outdoors and in the sun because it's kind of a natural need to to be out in in nature. People are happier in nature than otherwise. There's a lot of yeah, research and, shows. But but what, so what but but staying on the topic of, you know, maintaining the human race and so on, if we were to make this massive switch to nuclear energy and assume uh, it's, there's no doom and gloom. Assume waste can be figured out. Uh, assume there's no, uh, Chernobyl like accidents, which I think is a, a, a safe assumption over time as the technology gets better and better and it's already very good. Uh, could that solve a lot of the issues? So, all right, there are a few, I've asked all these
1: questions of myself and tried to figure things out and I can tell you the resources. There's that that i find the answers compelling and i'm not trying in my podcast this is this is i generally don't talk about what we're talking about now mm. uh but for because this stuff is out there and i'm not going to decide it for anybody else i can tell you that um the trends that i saw in the book limits to growth i found compelling uh people people ri- will widely misinterpret that book and its predictions but then um and actually the 30-year anniversary,
0: 30-year uh, second edition. Oh, I'm going to limit the growth? Yeah. Oh, you would,
1: if you read that, I would love to talk to you about it because there's a huge, there's people who understand it, but don't care. And there's people who care, but don't understand it. And very rarely is there someone who understands it and cares. And I would love to speak to people like that. Mm. And then there's also been people who have looked at, since then, the numbers. So that made some predictions back in 1972. And then 30 years later in 2002. And some people looked at it and said, there's all these predictions. It predicts all these different types of possible type cases. So, uh, and the numbers seem to show one of them is what the trajectory that we're following most. And I don't like the outcome of how that looks in the next couple decades. Uh, then there's, um, this podcast, a uh, blog called do the math by this guy in, uh, he's a Caltech trained physicist who's. Uh, a professor and researcher at UC San Diego. And his stuff on growth and energy use and growth, its he mostly look at, looks at energy and what happens if we keep growing and keep using energy. And that, I think, would be the most relevant to what you're talking about. But Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah, I think you'll like it. It's very readable. And he's been on my podcast a couple of times, and uh, I love talking about this stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, I'll definitely read the blog uh, and, and and the book. And okay. A, okay, so I oh, go ahead, go ahead.
1: There's another book, um, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. Another Caltech-trained physicist. He's since died, but he was at uh, Oxford.
0: And it's a free download. And Bill Gates wrote this wonderful review of it. Uh, I, think I, I think I ordered this book once on Bill Gates' recommendation. And, uh, well, I recommend it too. <laughs> and, oh, and then there's one
1: low-tech magazine uh, on, on online page. And, uh, so low, I think, and I'll send you all the links and the combination of those. have they've been the biggest things that have, um, set me to where I think that if we, if we continue on the trajectory that we're on, that it could be really detrimental
0: to human life and society. And would you say there's a book you've read? Or, or a source that you trusted that challenged any of these beliefs, and made you kind of be a skeptic. Also,
1: there's a friend of mine who is has gotten me. He, most people would call him a climate denier, a climate change denier. And at first, I thought, "Oh, I'm going to fix this guy." And it turned out he was more, he was better read and understood the stuff better than anyone. And that guy, I, I had to talk to him a lot and really get to where. Um, I, I can't say for sure these things that I thought were sure. And I really, it's, I first of all, I, I would send him like some obvious stuff, like the, the easy stuff about the environment. And he'd say, you know, these data is not quite right. Finally, I sent him the whole IPCC report. And I don't know if he read it or what, but he came back and he's like, if you look at this data, there are times when the scientists fix it. And I was like, well, of course, you know, you recalibrate the instruments and so forth. And he says, every time they fix it, it always shows more warming. If it was just calibration errors, you'd expect it to go both ways. Always went one way. And I was like, I don't know the data. I'm taking people's word for it. And, and so I
0: think I, that's been a common problem, right? I mean, that's what he's saying, basically, is that this has been a com- common problem. And, and uh, this is why, like, the UK banned Al Gore's documentary, right, is that uh, the, the scientists were all over the place on the, on the exact same data.
1: I don't know about the banning of his movie, but it's it's there's a lot of things people take stuff for granted. I do not use my platform to try to convince people of, of to see things my way,
0: and and also I think, look, your your at your point, like I I don't, I don't like to speculate on science stuff. I'm never going to be able to figure out. But your point is is that hey, no matter what, I sort of feel your point is, and or at least an area where you can reach the same place as a climate denier is that, Hey, it's better to have a great clean environment. It's better to not pollute. It's better to use resources, uh, effectively rather than, than waste them. It's better to not have plastic in the ocean that kills fish. So regardless of how you feel about gloom and doom within the next hundred years, there's very good reasons to have the same set of actions and beliefs as if you did believe the the gloom and doom stuff. Well,
1: I don't even connect with the gloom and doom stuff. It's, it's my, I forget if the microphone was on or not. When I, I talked about the, the no packaging and I thought it was going to be a challenge. I, I don't know anyone who wants more plastic in the ocean. I, I can't imagine anyone wanting right. more plastic in the ocean.
0: Right. nobody wants No one smog. wants mercury in their fish. Yeah.
1: And so I started making these changes. And what I realized was that, and I, there's no way I could have predicted this. I would have predicted the opposite. I would have predicted that, Acting on my environmental values would be hard. It would take effort. I would, I would I would do it begrudgingly, but I would do it. And I had no idea that it ended up being the best change in my life, best by my values. So it might be different for other people, but over and over again. And now over, the, I'm now about two years in this podcast. This is, I've the last I posted was like episode 200, 201, something like that. Wow. And over and over again, people go through this similar change. They're glad they did. And what I'm discovering is that like so, you're talking about nuclear energy. When I, when I was talking about the the shift away from like we're not going to get as much sunlight anymore, we we're creating a world around us in which the the more that I do this, the more I feel like I don't like the direction I was going. I don't like. Um, uh, to me, it's it's over and over again when I make these changes. It it creates community. It makes me closer to family. It makes me closer to friends makes me closer to my community.
0: Yeah. So I think those are good reasons. Yeah. That's what I'm about. uh, I think those are very good reasons to support, you know, good environmental practices. I think, I think a lot of times people take things to extremes and I'm not saying those extremes are wrong. It might be the case that, that we have 10 years left and then the glaciers are going to melt and we'll all be underwater. Who knows? But Despite that, even if whether that's true or not, it's very good to kind of have environmentally sound practices in your life for the reasons you just stated. Yeah. Increasingly, I find that,
1: um, like I haven't flown, I'm in year four of not flying. And I gave myself a challenge to go for a year without flying based on the challenge. Of, well, based on two things. One, finding out how much pollution flying caused, which was more than I expected. New York LA round trip, coach is roughly a year's worth of flying, uh, of driving. And I thought, oh, I don't have a car. I thought I was polluting less than I was. So I thought at day 366, I was sure I'd be on a flight because I like to be places. And if I'm not flying, it limits me. But I didn't replace flying with crying and lamenting my loss. I replaced it with things that I liked. And I found that I used to think of flying as something that would bring me to, say, a distant relatives. Now I think of flying as what makes the relative distant in the first place. And I used to think of flying as a way of escaping, but now I think of why did I want to escape? Well, like, what's wrong with my plate? Like now it gives me reason to connect with my community more.
0: So, so, and I, and I you know, I think it's almost like a common thing to uh, say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is an activist, but then they fly a plane. So are they a hypocrite or not? I don't know the answer to that, but that's like a common refrain. But what about other things like, like, do you eat meat, for instance? I haven't eaten meat since 1990. Okay, so, so that, because the whole, like, you know, apparently the uh, this was in the book Freakonomics, or, or no, actually it was in Super Freakonomics, uh, but now it's common knowledge. The biggest source of, uh, you know, however you define climate change is these, basically the gas passed by factory-farm cows. Uh, Burped,
1: actually, I see. Oh, really? I believe
0: it's burping. Yeah, not it's the other. It's the front end. It's like some <laughs> methane gas. Yeah. Is they burp, I guess. And so if we all just stopped eating cows, that would kind of solve enormous problems. But as a society, we don't do that. So, yeah.
1: And I mean, in my case, I don't really particularly like meat, so it wasn't an issue. I'd stopped along. I mean, environment was part of the reason. But uh, yeah, I think that, as I said, I believe the numbers suggest to me that I'm aware of suggest that their are problems if we keep on the same trajectory. Uh, and I want, I find that moving in a different trajectory, it, it just improves my life. And do,
0: you, do you have kids? I don't have kids. So, cause that's another thing. Kids are horrible for the environment. Well, oh, my impact
1: is really low. Like if you compare me to the average American, I'm like way lower. All oh, if you compare me to the average person from 500 years ago, I'm very high. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I, the last time I threw my garbage, it took me 16 months to fill up a load of trash. And that's like my whole house. Hmm. And I know people who create less. So I'm always, I still think of like, this is, I haven't drunk from this cup because it's in a plastic cup and it looks like it's disposable. So I'm not going to use it. Jay, why'd you get him a plastic cup? (laughs) (laughs) And um, let me practice with you. What is it? When you think about the environment, what do you think about?
0: That's a great question. You know, I'm here in New York City There is no environment here. (laughs) Like, what is the environment here? There's nothing. And I think that does have an effect on me personally. I think it's important to, I've never been a nature goer. I'm not, I don't hike in the mountains. I don't, I don't really spend time in gardens, but I did like being out, uh, living outside of New York city and living by a river and living where there were more trees and grass and birds and so on. So I think psychologically there's a difference for people like here I am. I'm totally not a nature going person. I never wake up and say, boy, I'm going to go out and find nature today. Mm -hmm. But I do miss, you know, in the long run, I do miss being more nature. Now I'm less in nature. So I guess the environment for me is, you know, what you call nature is and, and uh, you know, kind of, And where does nature come from? Is the the natural uh, the the things that the earth has has given us naturally, as opposed to the skyscrapers and the and the asphalt roads and and so on. Mm
1: -hmm. So, when you talked about the like birds and trees, I'm picturing you describing a a scene from your childhood.
0: No, more even. I've lived outside of New York at times in adulthood, mm -hmm. so more from that because I grew up in a suburb which almost doesn't feel like nature either like it's kind of these cookie cutter houses mm-hmm. you know and very regimented roads and i i i mean there was more nature than there was in new york city mm-hmm. but it was still suburban so it didn't quite feel like nature
1: so when you're talking about nature if it's not from your childhood it's from times when you've lived outside the city or yeah. experiences you've had camping or things like that no
0: i've never camped in my life <laughs> but uh it's times when i've lived outside the city yeah. Can you be more specific? Like, uh, you know, you were mentioning when you lived or when you you visit a farm in uh, two hours north of New York, I lived like about an hour north of New York Mm
1: -hmm. for a while. Okay. And so what was it like? What was it? Can you be more specific about like what you remember?
0: Yeah. Well, I lived right next to the Hudson River, Mm -hmm. like literally a few houses down from the Hudson River. Uh, So I'd walk outside my house and there was the Hudson River. In fact, across the river was West Point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I could go to the river on July 4th and West Point would have fireworks and we, there'd be a huge crowd and we'd watch the fireworks. And there were, there was a lot of hiking in the town.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I rarely, if ever went on a hike, but I was aware of it. There was a lot of mountains. The entire town was surrounded by kind of hilly mountains. And, uh, I don't know, it was just trees and you know, it's, it's a little quieter pace.
1: And was it Garrison? Was that where?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, it's New It's Cold Spring. Okay. Uh, Garrison and Cold Spring are part of the same town.
1: Okay. Yeah, the, I'm just thinking of the of the train ride up. I, yeah. you, you have to be on, on the, I
0: guess, the left side when you're going north and the right side going south
1: because it's so beautiful.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that was the other thing, too. Going taking the train into the city wasn't really a burden because you're just looking out. It's, like, really beautiful to look out at the river the entire way.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so you talked about there's your experiences in nature, which sound like in total amount of your life, not as much. I'm reading from your expression that it still made an impression on you, and it sticks with you somewhat. Yeah. And and then here we are in the city, and there's less of nature.
0: So, based on what you described... By the way, the city's not a bad place either. It just has less of nature. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to say good, bad. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um. Although it did seem not good, bad, but the the emotions attached to nature seemed more, the the pace at which you spoke seemed more reflective and and slower paced and uh, uh, not good or bad. Uh, And in the city, more um, faster paced. Yeah. Uh, So based on what, when when you think about the environment and given what you think about, I invite you at your option. So if you don't want to, that's fine. To think of something that you could do to act on that which could be, um, I mean, something really, I mean, maybe it's bring more nature into your life here or going there. I don't know. But something that, um, but I always have to say, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be fixing all the world's problems by yourself overnight. It's not something for other people. It's not for them. It's not for what the New York Times says is the most important thing to do, but just something I read. You liked something about that and to maybe make more to, I don't know, to act on that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could certainly, I don't live that far from either Central Park or Riverside Park, but I never spent time in either park. And certainly I could spend more time walking into those places, you know, and taking walks. But now it's like 90, you know, the problem with New York City a little bit is the weather is that it's, it's like negative thousand degrees in the winter and it's positive 7,000 degrees in the summer. Like right now it's like a hundred degrees. It's it was yeah, a it was it'll a, hit a burden today, I think. Yeah, it's a burden. It was a burden to walk the two hundred and fifty feet it took me to get here. So um
1: all right, so say it doesn't have to be right away. Cause I think it's gonna be cooler tomorrow and the next day, but then it's gonna be back up again oh, yeah. a couple of days. I was looking, yeah, one in one out today. Um So what I'd like to do is is to make it a smart goal.
0: I I think it's a spectrum of of things too. Like for instance uh right now i'm not carrying a phone mm-hmm. so when you're not carrying a phone when i leave here i'll be more inclined to not be anxious about my email and said so i'll look around at people i think i think people are part of nature and i like looking at people mm-hmm. so that's you know for me that's nature too so doing things doing less doing fewer things that are kind of man made as opposed to natural
1: so what i what i after someone comes up with some, on the podcast, after someone comes up with something they can do, I say let's make a smart goal, and then and then I invite them to a second episode, which is often shorter, but sometimes longer, to share what that experience was like, because that's what I want get people to get a feeling for. Because I think a lot of people a lot of people listening to this are probably feeling if I if I act, but no one else does what I then what I do doesn't matter. Or you know, yeah, I could do it, but James Altucher doesn't do that stuff. <laughs>
0: Well, I think, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons to sort of check in with nature, including your own personal productivity goes up according to uh, a a lot of research on this. Mm -hmm. So it's not that bad. I wish knowing that research that I would spend more time in like physical nature. Like, let's say, even if you see one tree a day, it, your productivity spikes and, uh, and your creativity spikes. So that's probably a worthwhile goal for me is to see a little bit more of nature per day. Like you really see no nature at all in New York City during the day, mm-hmm. unless you actively seek it out. There's nothing. So yeah. even if you walk around like London, there's parks and greenery everywhere. If you go around in LA, LA is a city that's so spread out, you'll, you'll find, and it's right near an ocean, you'll, you'll find nature. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, New York City is a little harder, I think.
1: Although we are like two blocks from Central Park.
0: I know, but I don't go there. Yeah. So let's say if... Um, I haven't been to Central Park in a year and a half. And really? we're two
1: blocks away. So all right, I want to offer two things. One is, how long do you think you'd have to... Say you did it for a certain amount of period of time, a certain frequency. Then would you care to share the experience? Yeah, sure. Okay, so what would, what would the frequency be and for how long?
0: I don't know. I mean, again... It's it's too hot for me to walk to Central Park right now. I'm, I I don't want to do it. Uh, well, it could start in
1: September, or, yeah. or or it could be that you, I don't know, go to the beach or something.
0: Yeah, no, I don't like the beach. Okay, <laughs> I get some. I too, like water, right? but I don't like the beach. Uh-huh. uh so I like a pool, but I I don't know. But yeah, I could say and when it's a reasonable temperature, I don't mind walking around Central Park. I think that's nice, and it's a way to disconnect from the stresses and anxieties of email and work and so on. And it's a good way to reconnect with nature, even though Central Park tends to be a little overcrowded sometimes. Mm -hmm. So so that could be a reasonable goal. I also like the idea of, and I've tried this at different points before. uh, I like the idea of taking the stairs and not the elevator. Uh So just for more exercise. Uh, So I used to do that, but I lived on the sixth floor and then I moved to the seventh floor now it's just a little bit harder. That one floor made the difference. Yeah. <laughs> that, the sixth floor was like already hard. And now the seventh floor is like, ugh, am I really going to, I might as well just take the elevator this time because it's, it's 95 degrees out too. Mm-hmm. So, so I pre-
1: here's my prediction is that when we talk the next time, all the things you said, you, you have a certain expectation of, of enjoying the experience. Now you'll have to say no to other things. You know, you'll have to not do something if, to make this happen. And, but I predict that you'll like the experience more than you predict in ways that you couldn't have predicted. And I, I like to make this joke that I, I could, I bet you that that will happen and it will be, it'll be so much, you'll like it so much that you won't even be able to, lie. you could win the
0: bet simply by lying. But, but I bet that you're right because, uh, I know for a fact, when I moved from the city to for a little while to live in cold spring, New York, I was more productive in some ways not in other ways but in in terms of productivity that needed to match my creativity mm-hmm. i was it spiked huge and being in the city is is much more difficult for that in part because of the distractions but now based on things i'm just reading very recently also probably related to less nature
1: so how long so when do you want to start and how long do you think it'll
0: take uh let's say how fast does it get? That's the other thing. New York gets really cold starting in September. Uh, all right. I have a September 1st and till November 1st. Oh, a couple of months. Okay. Yeah.
1: And you haven't had Wim Hof in your podcast yet? or
0: No, no. no I've, but I'm, I've asked him and he's agreed, but I do podcasts in person and he just, he hasn't been in uh, New uh. York and I haven't been in Arizona. I think he lives. Is he there now? Oh, or no, there? Or he might, maybe Florida. I forget where he lives. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't
1: know. I, I, I presumed it was in Amsterdam, uh, Holland, but.
0: I oh oh maybe uh I just know we haven't been in the same city. Mm-hmm. So so but I really want him on actually. Yeah, and I do the cold uh so I had Aubrey Marcus on uh-huh. and he highly recommended uh Wim Hof's uh kind of the cold shower uh method. So I do that. Okay.
1: Yeah, I I take cold showers too. <laughs> it, and I can't explain it to anyone. People who get it get it. And people who don't get it, it's like
0: I can't explain it. It's, it, well, I don't know. Do you take the whole shower cold? Yeah. I just do, go the final like minute and then I'll get colder and colder and colder until it's like ice freezing cold. And what it feels like is that it almost feels warm underneath one it, underneath your skin once you get out of the shower. I, I was reading, do you know Joel Runyon? He's no. a really cool guy and um,
1: he did a TEDx talk on it and I found it very compelling. And I was I was reading... I, was, I, I watched a TEDx talk and then I read his post on it. And then I read all the comments of all these people. And I was reading the comments and I just, it seems like such a rewarding thing to do that I just like turned around and walked in the shower, turned on just the cold, didn't even touch the hot and took my, fr- and minimum five minutes and took a like pure cold water, cold shower. And then uh, I think he recommended doing it every day for 30 days. So I did it every day for 30 days. That was really brutal. But the change in my life was really great. And I How's understood. How did your life change? many different ways. One of them is developing the skill of saying you're going to do something and then doing it. It's so easy to say I'm going to take a cold shower. And then as you're reaching for it, like your mind fills up with like tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow really. Or like, Oh, I'll make it cool, not cold. And then, but actually to do it, it's of all the things you can do to improve your life, to challenge yourself, you know, lifting weights or, dieting or whatever there's a million things meditation uh it takes no time it takes no money it actually gives you time usually because my cold showers are usually shorter than my hot showers it
0: takes it, it's zero effort okay I, you can I, just, anytime I, you want you just take cold I, instead of hot I, I want to change I want to change my goal to so I like I say I do it at the end and like the final minute you know maybe even a little less but uh I like the idea of taking 100% cold showers. I'm going to change my goal to I'm going to do that every day for 30 days. Oh, you could
1: do that in 90-degree weather. It's a lot easier than in, yeah. in
0: December. Yeah. So do you want for 90 days? No, I'll do it. I don't know. I'll, that, I'll do it for 30, oh, 30 days. I didn't hear what you said. Or, 30 days. Oh, 30 yeah. days. Okay.
1: So um. then… Do you want to get on? We'll schedule another conversation yeah, yeah. for 30, 30 Yeah, more. I'm
0: curious because you say there's lots of change in your life. And I've noticed changes from just doing it in the last minute. But I'm curious. Like, the whole shower is cold. I'm curious what the what the changes will be or if I could do it. I okay. don't know if I can do it.
1: And I'll send I'll send you the link to Joel's uh, okay. TEDx talk.
0: Yeah. And I'll look it up. Joel Runyon, TED talk. Yeah.
1: And... Um, so the one thing was to invite you to do that. Then also... If you're up for it, I don't know what you're doing after this, but we could just walk over there for a minute.
0: I, I know it's kind of hot. Uh yes, so the- yeah. I, I would do it, honestly, but it, it is too hot. Like I uh-huh. uh uh I, I just I don't like doing anything that I don't like doing. Okay. <laughs> so it's just too hot for me to walk over there. So maybe we'll do it in 30 days, maybe yeah, it yeah. might be hotter. It might be hotter, <laughs> yeah. Um but I think we're going through a heat wave. So I don't think it's normally this hot. Yeah. Because very humid too. Well, Paris was hitting like 110. 110- like a month ago, which is very unusual. Uh, we just, a week ago, we just got back, a week ago today, we got back from London. London was amazing. It was like 75 degrees every mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. Nice little breeze. It was beautiful.
1: Actually, it was like that yesterday or maybe two days ago. Yeah, maybe two days ago here. And now I want to point out the tone of our conversation right now compared to when you're talking about the nuclear energy and stuff like that. I don't want to stop people from looking at the science and analyzing and debating and figuring those things out. That's important and I have a say in those things, but that's not what I do in the podcast. My read and tell me if it feels different for you. Is it the conversation that we're having now is kind of an interesting? Huh. What if I did this? Maybe it's maybe I can't. There are things that I can do.
0: Well, because I I think you're right, but I think it's because now we're talking about personal improvement that also kind of contributes, say, to to better life and awareness of the world. So if, so if everybody focused on personal improvement instead of arguing various issues, which occasionally we have to do just for society to grow and urban planning and so on, you kind of have to debate facts and science and, and how cities are laid out and how energy is provided to those cities and people and so on. But I, for me personally, just personal improvement is a much more interesting issue. And, and I think if everybody focused on that, it's sort of like the whole idea if you, uh, you know, don't try to change your world until you change your life. So I think that's a much more rational way to change the world. It's kind of one person at a time. So I think it was your focus initially.
1: Yeah, that's the, the technique that I use. Which This is, to me, leadership is to start with what the person values. Now, you value personal development, personal growth, personal challenge. And so that's what's resonating with you. But someone else might be something different. For me, it's beauty of nature. Well, now it's a lot of other things too, because it's been, such, it's, it's been things I've been doing for so long. But for someone else, it might, someone who, I had the Super Bowl winner on. And for him, it was, when I asked him what the environment meant to him, it was camping in the Pacific Northwest with his grandfather and fishing. And so that's what it was for him. And if you said to him, what about personal development and growth? He might be like, that's not really so important to me.
0: So I see. So maybe a lot of the people you've spoken to have had childhood memories of nature like this guy. Mm-hmm. So nature somehow is a way for him to bond with his family and people who are dead now. And so it's kind of nostalgic. It brings back good memories of being a child. Uh, so he, t- he attaches nature to all these other things yeah. correctly. And uh, so that's why you asked me if if it was related to childhood memories, whereas I have essentially zero childhood memories about nature other than whatever nature is found in a suburb.
1: Yeah. And some people, it's like like they saw a movie of some dystopic future and that's the thing for them. Or sometimes you had an experience of living in a place and I, I, I tried to make it vivid and I tried to get to what I tried to see it from your perspective. And that's what I think is, it's something missing from everyone's like, you know, the, the best they can do is say, think of your grandchildren or think of your children or think of future generations. Of course, we all care about kids and future generations. I mean, I have nieces and nephews, and I care about the world that they're going to be in. But it's still abstract.
0: It is abstract so much. It is abstract, and I think, I think it's actually hard to really think in the abstract. I don't like to do that because the more abstract you get, the more probably incorrect you're going to be. So for me to think in the abstract, well, the world could be damaged 500 years from now. I don't know how it's going to be 500 years from now, so I prefer not to think about it. Uh, so I actually don't really think in the abstract at all because I just look back at the history of prediction making. And th- this is, this is about personal improvement because this is about how for me personally, how I improve. I don't, I don't ever think about distant future and rarely even think about close future other than immediate concerns. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah. I, I just see like, you know, there was a famous bet in the 1980s, the economist Julian, Simon's, uh, said, uh, or Julian Simon said, uh, to another economist, I forget his name. I'll bet you that, uh, I forgot his exact bet. I think he basically bet that, um, a thousand dollars worth of commodities that the other economists could pick
1: mm-hmm.
0: wouldn't go up in value faster than just a thousand dollars. And because the idea being is that as those commodities would become scarce, meaning their value should go up, society itself would innovate and replace those commodities. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't care that they're scarce anymore. And he won his bet. Mm-hmm. So so he was kind of making the example that things, we usually tend to not predict how well things are going and and how fast, you know, the world innovates past the problems that we perceive in the future. And so that always gives me hope and encouragement and and you know even when you know we can be we're bombarded every day on both sides of facts on every issue and i just never i never think about it if it uh you know i always i always get back to uh you know improve my own life is my way of improving improving the world that's what I'm trying to do
1: that's why that's why I talk about. You know, if you're up for it, I can we can we can record here next time, or if you're up for coming down, I'll make you some of my famous vegetable famous right. meal packaging vegetables
0: too. Where do you live? Greenwich Village.
1: Okay. Off an express stop, so it's even easier to get to.
0: Okay. I don't take the subway. Uh, I take I take a, I take a cab uh, to support those hardworking the, uh, yeah. immigrants <laughs> that come to the United States and can't find it and now they're being, you know, slaughtered by the, the Ubers of the world. You know, mm-hmm. their their ta- value their tax medallions have, have made many of them go bankrupt. Oh, yeah. So, but it's a different philosophical view. I I don't care about my carbon footprint in, in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I have kids, so kids are the, almost the worst thing you could do in terms of increasing your carbon footprint because mm-hmm. kids have such a high carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the value, the, the carbon footprint of bringing a new human onto this planet is, is so enormous. You could, you could fly all day long back and forth to new york la yeah. <laughs> forever and it still won't match the carbon footprint of bringing another human to earth so yeah. some of that i don't i i you know some of it i pay attention to oh i don't like to waste but some of it i don't i don't pay attention to mm-hmm. yeah i think i
1: mean i pay attention to it a lot and this what i pay attention to is a tiny fraction of what there is that could be paid attention to yeah and like you it's uh, like
0: well, i won't throw garbage on the sidewalk, for instance. And yet there's a lot of garbage on the sidewalk. Yeah, but it, but it's better than it was, let's say, uh, uh, 30 years ago. I was just watching Mad Men, and uh, there's this one scene where uh, they they have a picnic. This is like in the early 1960s, and they just leave all their They're having uh, a picnic in yeah. the park, and they just leave all their garbage just lying around in the park. They don't think about it because that's what people used to do in the 1960s. So, you know, kind of our, I think what happens is, as each individual person improves and gets a sense of, you know, what's better for me, you know, as opposed to that sounding selfish, it actually turns out to be better for society as a whole. Yeah. And
1: what I, and so I think that by bringing, you're a well-known person, you have a lot of people follow you and,
0: uh, from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah.
1: Well, we can look at the numbers and, and right now, there aren't many people with a lot of followers who are acting even just to go to the Central Park a couple of times or to take a cold shower every now and then, or I guess for 30 days, uh, that's missing. And what's... what's mi- So your community, they see you improving your life in various different ways. And I guess you also take a lot of risks and sometimes th- things fuck up. <laughs> uh, but then you recover and things... Uh, the last I read, you woke up, it was like the best morning you woke It was like one of the greatest feelings you had waking up in, in some morning. Yeah. And there aren't people who share that with a large audience who are also doing anything environmental.
0: Well I agree because I think a lot of people with you know quote unquote followers or readers or whatever are tend to tend to argue about these global macro things that I just I just really can't find the will to care about. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to bring to the world people
1: doing things and sharing their experiences and not just saying, everyone should change. Look at these numbers. Look how horrible it is. Look at all these things melting and so forth. But not actually themselves. It, it's still presented as a burden.
0: Yeah. It's still presented as a chore. And then if you don't do it, you're killing pa- babies. Right. It reminds me of people who uh, they, they're very forceful, like, well, I'm an atheist. And then the next person is, well, I'm a Christian. And they argue then all day about the benefits of atheism versus Christianity or believing in a God. And as opposed to just simply uh, living a better life, and then it doesn't really matter, you know, one way or the other.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of joy to be had. I'm trying to bring that out. And, and I think that Actually,
0: we'll see how it goes the next time. You might come back and say, I did it two days. It was horrible and I never want to do it again. Uh, I might. I'm leaving every, every possibility open. Yeah. Um, if I'm like, oh, this is horrible. I'm not going to do it. But I, I, since I've already been experimenting with it, I, I'm confident it's going to be. I'll, I don't know if I'll have the willpower, but I'm confident if I have the willpower, it'll be good for me. And I'll throw in also I'm going to visit the park a few times. Okay. So, oh, even in the next 30 days. Yeah. It, okay, cool. Um, maybe not Central Park, maybe Riverside Park is that closer? Yeah, and that's one block away as opposed to three block. Technically three blocks away.
1: You might even notice the trees between. Like there are these are tree line blocks here in El Pueblo Side.
0: Uh, oh, I've never noticed that.
1: You that's the thing. Like that's one of the things that I think you'll notice more. Hmm. That there might even I don't see any in this studio. Yeah, it's because there's no windows here. But there there might be plants somewhere in this office. Unlikely that a plant will live in a not survive in a comedy club. Are... Anyway, so now we're kind of talking about next time. So let's pick up here next time. Okay. Uh, I'd like to close with a couple of questions. If there's, um, if there's a, well, this one, if there's anything you didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up, or if there's anything you want to say directly to the listeners of the Leadership in the Environment podcast. I, uh, well, I
0: think, I think, again, this idea of stop worrying about the entire planet and stop worrying about the US, which by the way, in general seems to have moved in a good path and doesn't seem to present as many problems as the the rest of the world, depending on how you measure these things. Stop worrying about measuring and just worry about your own, uh, life and what you could do better because that's people always like, I don't vote. Right. So people always say to me, Oh, if you, what if everybody did that? Well, not everyone's going to not vote, and I am able to express myself to a, a a larger audience than just a voting machine. So I feel I have my voice in society, and I, I don't like to vote for various reasons. And uh, it's the same thing here. If 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 everybody were to just improve themselves, that would solve a lot of society's problems. Now, unfortunately, that's not going to be the case that everyone does that. It's much more clear when you when you say it that way that not everyone's going to do something positive but uh you know unfortunately but that's that's the kind of the only advice i ever have
1: well you're making i'm now my appetite is whetted to hear
0: the next episode so i'm
1: looking forward to next time thank
0: you very much excellent thank you josh i appreciate it i'm going to read your book and i'm going to check out these references and i also want to mention i really like this way of thinking about uh i don't know like performance or you know is it is it active is it social is it emotional? Is it expressive? And is it performance based? I like this way of measuring a, perfor- a performance.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, if I were to start talking about it, I would. I would keep talking about it. Also, next time I'll also give you a copy of the uh, of my leadership book, which specifically that's where I came up with the AC acronym. All right, I'll say I'll just buy it on Amazon.
0: All the better. I, I like to buy. I like to buy books. I mean, you're an author. You need to be. You need to get paid. So to... you're warming my heart. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you.
1: Wow. Did I enjoy the conversation with James? Partly, I hope I didn't speak too much, but he seemed genuinely curious about my ASEEP active, social, emotional, expressive performance-based field concept. I can't wait to hear how he responds to the ACP stuff, the cold showers and exploring Central Park. I won't say much more, but I'll let you know in 30 days. Does hearing leaders acting on their values make you think of yours? Nothing will make you feel better than acting on them. Value means better. Acting on your values means improving your life. Committing publicly helps many people and builds community too. If you want, click on Commit to a Personal Challenge to share what you do with this community. You'll be a leader among leaders. We're more than a podcast. We're a movement to share how acting on environmental values means fun, joy, growth, and so on, not sacrifice or deprivation. If you want to join or help, contact me at josh spodak.net or at joshatspodak.com slash podcast. You'll grow as a leader You'll enjoy yourself, and the world and your communities will thank you for it.